It's a lot of fun. Keep it fun. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the UK Packers podcast. As usual, I'm your host at the NFL on Twitter, and of course, follow the group at UK Packers. And it's been a while since I've had a heavyweight guest on. And I know I say this every time I get a sort of heavyweight journalist guest on, but dear God, we've hit the holy grail in this one. It's Jason Wilde or Jason Wild. This is this is the questions that I'm going to put to you first, Jason. First off. <laughs> Thank you very much for taking the time coming on. How are you today? I don't know. Uh, heavyweight, is that a is that a fat joke? Because it certainly <laughs> can't be my career. <laughs> it is the career. We know full well of your work, your long-form pieces. Uh, you've been covering the Packers now for probably... You've been covering... Let's put it this way. You've been covering the Packers for longer than Kenny Clark has been alive. Uh, Darnell Savage Jr. was a twinkle in his father's eye uh, by the time you were covering the Packers. Um, and am I right in saying that it's all the way back in 1996 or before that you've professionally been covering the Packers and picked up a host of awards since then, uh, Jason? So I don't think you can use the modest card. And no, I'm not calling you fat. And yes, you are a heavyweight, uh, if I can say that much. Um, but listen, I'm going to get at you straight away, right? I'm going to put to the, the first test to you, and it's the first test that I give people. Now, I've already name-dropped Kenny Clark when I had him on the podcast, right? And I've even done this to him. He has a second name called Clark. So I went there and asked him, did he have any Irish? Now, Mark Murphy was on, and his second name's Murphy. And look at his hair. So needless to say, he had Irish heritage. Uh, Larry McCarran was on, and I asked Larry how Irish he was, and he told a story how he went on to heritage.com or one of these websites and got kind of a, you know, the family DNA test. Yeah. And he found out that an awful lot of his family had differing amounts of Irishness in them. So I think I broke up the McCarran household and I think they're all fighting over whose dad <laughs> is who, right? And they're, they're looking at the postman funny. Let's just put it that way. So what I want to ask you is your second name is Wilde. Now, is it Germanic, Belgian, Dutch extraction of Wilde? Or is it the kind of Oscar Fingal of Flaherty Wills wild variety of Wilde? Where does it come from, Jason? This is this is great because I have had to explain this before. So it is pronounced Wildy because it is from my father's side. Uh, my father was 100% German, uh, second generation uh, American. Mm. And my mother, uh, her father was full-blooded German and her mother was full-blooded Irish. She came... Uh, she came as a little girl from Ireland. So in, if my uh, Punnett square is accurate, that would make my mom one half Irish and one half German, my father all German. So I am three quarters German, one quarter Irish, and it is German in the last name. So that is why it's not wild, even though anytime my name seems to be said publicly it uh, by someone who is unfamiliar of who the heck I am. Yeah. Uh, it is almost always wild. So for the two people on planet Earth who didn't know who you were, <laughs> you got called wild. <laughs> it's not too bad. It's not too bad. You're associated with Oscar. Um, so, I mean, that's quite a mix. I'd say the drinking sessions in, in the Wilde house are quite savage. I'd say you have some stories, do you? They were certainly savage with my ancestors. Not as much with me, but yes, there was uh, there were some very professional drinkers in my uh, <laughs> family tree that i'm sure stumbled out of it more than once. <laughs> yeah well 
listen, uh, we all know um, your name. You're synonymous with the Packers. Uh, you know, there's an awful lot of very experienced writers up there uh, in Green Bay and an awful lot of very good questions and an awful lot of really weird occurrences as well, which I'll get on to a little bit later, perhaps in the podcast. But look, um, with with a person as sort of as large as you are uh, in, in, the, in the Packers world, if I can maybe pull you away from it for a sec, and uh, get very personal with you. If I can dive back into uh, what makes you tick, in a way, um, and I've, I've, you know, I've done this to Rob Domofsky, um I've done it to Wes Hotkowitz and all the rest. Now the thing is, uh, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong. You're a Milwaukee native, right? I did. Yes, I grew up in Milwaukee. Yeah. So I mean, it, it sort of would almost seem uh, obvious to people that you grew up in the locale. Uh, it's no wonder that you're a diehard Packer fan. But for you. What was your first memory of, you know, being a Packers nut or your first memory of the Packers as a kid growing up? Was it three years old, sort of watching it with your granddad? I mean, I mean, how did it all come about for you? Yeah, that's. I'm glad you asked that because I think people struggle to understand when I try to explain to them that I'm not a fan, um, that they don't understand that there is a transition that occurs when you do this, especially as long as I have. And whether it's, being able to look behind the curtain and seeing uh, how some people aren't what they're cracked up to be, or it's seeing how an organization functions or, you know, whether it's just you deal with good people and you deal with not such great people. um, It really does become more about telling the stories and covering the journey of a team than it does of, you know, what you're hoping for. Now I will say that I'm a, a fan of people. Yeah. And there are certain people that I want to see succeed because I'm still human, but I'm, I'm definitely a different uh, observer of the Packers than I was, you know, the, the, the most vivid memories of my childhood, you know, having been um, born in 1972, I, I followed a bunch of Packers teams that weren't very good. Yeah. Um, so the, the ones that stand out 1980 when Chester Markle, uh, kicks a field goal, it's blocked, he catches it and runs it in for a touchdown. I remember watching that game on television. Uh, I remember my most vivid memories probably when I was 11 years old. And for the first time in my life, my parents allowed me to stay up late and watch the entirety of Monday Night Football. And I got to watch the Packers and Washington in that game that the Packers end up win- winning. And Mark Mosley misses the field goal at the end that would have won it 50-48. Uh, to 48. That the Packers went 48-47. That's a game that is still um, uh, on the hall in the hallway that leads from the Packers locker room to the field. Yeah, that is one of the moments in Lambeau Field history that is hanging on the wall. It's it's um it, there aren't many from the 1980s, but uh, that is one of the more signature ones. So you know, for me, you know, at some point um, I stopped wanting to be Lynn Dickey. <laughs> and started wanting to be, um, you know, something different, something like uh, Bud Lee from the Milwaukee Sentinel, yeah. who I read every day. So that that's kind of where that shift occurred, and it has never really come back. I am thankful that so many people care so deeply about the Packers that they make my job meaningful. But um, I, I just I don't I don't I don't care about the outcome i care more about the story and so you've sort of alluded to you know reading the papers and and that's how that came about and it's very easy to look at your career now and how it ended up and how successful you are 
Um, but an awful lot of the journalists that I speak to, I mean, it's it's such a journey from covering flower shows and all of that type of stuff. So, I mean, for you then, why was it journalism for you? Because you went to the University of Wisconsin, right? And, uh, you know, majored in journalism. Was was it with a view of even covering sport or the Packers? Were you sort of just a, a great storyteller um, as you were going through your teens and into adolescence? I mean, why journalism and then why sports journalism um, as well? Yeah, I'm I'm one of those lucky people and I don't know, you know, what percentage of people have this good fortune, but I'm, I'm one of them that got to grow up and be what he always wanted to be as a kid. Like it was in fourth grade that I got my first issue of sports illustrated. And I, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a sports writer. I wanted to, I loved English classes. I loved writing and I loved sports. So it was pretty easy. And as I read, you know, I, I was the kid that every morning, uh, you know, Milwaukee used to be a two newspaper town. Mm. And so Every morning, uh, as I ate my Fruit Loops before I went to St. Paul's Lutheran School, I read the Milwaukee Sentinel Sports section. And then every afternoon, when the school bus dropped me off at the stop-and-go convenience store where my bus stop was, um, I went home and I read the Milwaukee Journal Sports section, which was the afternoon paper, before I did my homework. Yeah. Um, and so it, you know, that was that was. I was lucky to decide kind of what I wanted to be from a very early age. And now I've gotten to live that I would say, and I say this whenever I talk to journalism classes in colleges, or even when I go to high schools and talk, you know, the most important thing to love is not the sports. It's the love of writing and the love of storytelling and really the love of talking to people. Like, you know, I don't, think I'm the greatest writer ever. I don't, I certainly am not the greatest reporter ever. Domofsky's phenomenal at breaking news. And mm. I think he's kind of set the standard on our beat for how good he is at that. Yeah. He also is more than willing to talk to agents, which is not my favorite part of the job. Um, but, you know, I don't, I'm not the greatest at either one of those things, but I do think despite the grief that I may get from my long winded press conference questions, <laughs> I think I'm pretty good at getting people to talk to me. Mm. And I think there's a value in that. And I think your success as a writer is predicated in large part on how effectively you can get people to open up and talk to you. And I think that that's probably my strength that allows me to do things that, uh, and write things that I wouldn't otherwise be able to write because I get people to say things that they might not otherwise say. Yeah, and that raises a very interesting point. I mean, I guess this is a double-barreled uh, Jason Wildey-style question now for you. But um, I guess when you look at it then, how do you go about fostering uh, those relationships and gaining a person's trust? Because certainly uh, what I witness here is is that, and I've had players on and media personalities on, and I find that with the players, especially current players, um, there's an awful lot of sort of schmooze that has to go on to say, listen, I'm not after a headline or a hit job. I'm I'm just here to you know, bring your story to the European audience and there's not and with agents as well and trying to reassure them. I'm not trying to get them on and say, like, for instance, I had Greg Jennings on and the one thing that I didn't want to do, um, despite, you know, some of the stuff that he says in the media, I didn't want to say, oh, so tell me Aaron or Brett, you know what I mean? I didn't want to go down that road. So how do you foster relationships uh, with players to get them to trust you? Um, 
you know and and how what's your technique then when you do start that relationship to get the player to open up because the criticism that we always get and it's great talking to Leroy Butler and the Gravedigger and all the rest these guys they love to talk to tell you all the stories um even on Will Day and Tausch uh, you know, we had, uh, you know, you had John Kuhn coming on and telling the story how the Steelers drafted him at the, ve- you know, brought him on at the very last minute, which blew your guys' minds about, oh my God, the Packers had, uh, you know, a thing in that. And all the stories only come out. But when they're playing, Jason, is it not true that they, they're PR trained up to the hilt? They don't give you any real information. So I guess my long winded question is number one, how do you gain that trust in the first place? And then when you have it, how do you get them to open up and say something that's meaningful instead of the usual PR drivel? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, I think it's a day by day process. And I think you build that trust. You know, when Devontae Adams got here as a rookie in 2014, he didn't know me and I didn't know him. Yeah. Um, same with Randall Cobb in 2011. But as the years have gone on, you know, Randall and now Devontae too, that those are guys that I do have a a pretty strong trust with. Now, that I think there's probably people that would be critical of me and say that, well, maybe I'm not critical enough. Um, you know, my inclination from a storytelling perspective is um, I'm more likely to pursue the story about the guy who is playing really well um, over the past several games then pursue the story about the guy who hasn't done much. Yeah. Now, at some point, you have to write that other story, too. But, you know, if it's an either-or proposition and, you know, Kyler Fackrell has five sacks in the last three games and Clay Matthews hasn't had a sack in a month, um, I think I'll write about both, but I'm probably more inclined to, to delve deeper into, well, where did, what's going on with Kyler, Kyler Fackrell? Where did this come from? Yeah. Is it just good fortune? All that kind of stuff. Mm. So I think that's part of it. I think in terms of building that relationship, though, like I said, it's just a it's a day by day process. And as they get to know you and as you ask questions that I think they realize are insightful or different than just, you know, talk about today's game kind of stuff. I think they start to kind of understand you. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, you're going to succeed on all these things. Um, You know, I, 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 I desperately want. Jimmy Graham to tell his life story. Yeah. Now I think he's probably told it in past years during his time at new Orleans or maybe when he was in college at, at Miami, but he has not told that story to Packers fans mm. and he is not accessible to us. He tends to avoid us. Um, and his story is fascinating. I mean, the, the childhood that he has overcome and the, the really interesting guy he's become like, he's a, He's a smart, engaging guy when he makes himself available to us. He's a pilot. Like, yeah, he's a pretty interesting cat. And he's kind of my, he's my white whale right now. Like I, he just, I've talked to him a couple of times. I've even asked him, you know, why, why is it that you avoid us? And he, he basically says that he had a bad experience in Seattle and he had the, the time where he went up against the NFL for, um, how he's going to be classified and with the franchise tag and everything else. Mm. And so I think that, you know, sometimes you can't crack through that. Um, and maybe I never will, you know, he'll be here another year or two years and I'll never gotten to tell his story and that'll be a disappointment for me. But I, I think what it comes down to is, you know, letting these guys know, um, that you're going to be fair, but you're also not going to just write puff pieces to tell everybody how great they are. Yeah. But I think the great play, the great thing about great players 
is that when they don't play well, I think they know they didn't play well, and they're honest about them not playing well. Charles Woodson is one of my favorite guys I've ever covered because he was always so honest and so self-aware. Yeah. And whether it was criticizing the team or criticizing himself, he did that, and it wasn't an issue. It wasn't like, um, oh, boy, is Charles going to be mad at me if I write something critical? Mm. Um, I never, you know, I didn't have to worry about that. I just told the truth, and that's all he ever wanted. And I think most players are like that. Yeah, because that was a question that we got for you from Grey Wing on Twitter, and it's something that I was sort of fascinated with as well, is that how you kind of, uh, you know, you judge that, like how critical can you be without the person getting annoyed, especially someone that, I mean, if we use Jimmy Graham as an example, um, and I know he opened up to the media, and along your point, sort of pointing out that he had a season that was underwhelming for him, that he wanted to do better, and I know... Uh, you and, and Mark went sort of back and forth about, you know, do players usually do that or not? Um, so, I mean, has there been a time that you have wanted to write a piece that's been critical, but have sort of said, well, kind of like what you're saying about Clay Matthews and, and Kyler Fackerel and sort of said, no, no, I'll stray away. Or have you ever written a piece? Because we we had Rob Domofsky on and he said that happened to him, that he wrote something um, that one of the player's friends relayed it in a way that wasn't written. And it was very objective and very stat-based. Uh, but the way it was put across to the player, the player kind of had it out with him in the locker room to say, what did you write that? That's not true. And he showed him the piece, showed him what he wrote, and then it was all okay. You know, any sort of grisly experiences like that uh, for you, Jason, in that regard? Well, first of all, that that tends to be a common problem is that they get angry about stories that they heard about you writing but didn't actually read themselves. Yeah. Um, my my uh, favorite story like that is... Um, with Brett Favre and why I think some people uh, I've told this story a bunch of times here stateside. Mm. Um, so in 2005, the Packers are playing in Philadelphia and it was the, it was a woebegone season. They, they struggled. They um, finished four and 12 that year. Um, and so it was a, you know, it was a colossally disappointing year for them. And Favre did not obviously play very well. It was Mike Sherman's last year. Yeah. But this was a game that they had an opportunity to win. They're in, in Philly. Um, they're um, down, I think, 17-14, if I remember. They get the ball back in, uh, in the final two minutes. And uh, so they've got the ball with a chance to go in and win the game. Mm. Uh, Favre drops back and throws, as we saw many times during the late portion of his career, um, a punt-style interception. Yeah. Uh, the, the Eagles intercept it. Game's going to be over. And there's a penalty for uh, roughing the passer. So the interception is wiped out. On the very next play, he drops back to throw again and throws the exact same pass. It's intercepted by the exact same player, and they lose. Yeah. Uh, after the game, you know, that's it. That's, that's something you got to ask about. So I asked and his response was, I was just trying to make a play. And then a couple of questions later, I asked him, you know, what was it with the offense? You guys really just could never get into a rhythm for most of the game. And he goes on a very long soliloquy about the way, um, a rookie fullback at the time, Vontae Leach had dropped a swing pass early in the game when he was in, in 
place of William Henderson had gotten hurt. Yeah. And it's this lengthy thing about what a, you know, what a, what a mistake it was. And if he catches that, we get rolling and maybe we get kind of the offense going. And I, I thought, well, wait a minute. So you still had a chance to win the game late and you threw this interception and you just say, oh, I was trying to make a play. But then you turn around and are so hypercritical of a rookie who dropped the pass yeah. at a totally different juncture of the game. So I wrote a column that basically said, look, this team has, has lost its way. And their leader of the pack, instead of taking responsibility for having the game in his hand and failing by throwing an interception, instead he throws a rookie under the bus for a play that happened far earlier in the game. Yeah. And it was, it was critical for sure. And this is actually the incident that led to my rapport with Aaron Rodgers. So I, uh, on the Wednesday after that game, uh, I had a friend who was covering the Arizona Cardinals at the time, and they had a running back named JJ Arrington who had played with Rodgers at Cal. Yeah. And he had, asked me, hey, can you talk to Rogers about Arrington? I need a couple of quotes for my story. I said, sure. So Rogers and I are talking at his locker about J.J. Arrington, and Favre comes up and interrupts us and says, I heard you took a shot at me. Like, it, literally mid-sentence with Rogers. Yeah. And, and I turned to Favre. I said, yeah, I mean, I guess I did. Do you want to talk about it? He says, no. And he walks away. Um, one of the PR guys overhears it, and uh, he has a different role in the organization now than he did then. But instead of maybe talking to Favre and diffusing it, instead he goes and gets a copy of the story and takes it to Favre, who has not read the story. Yeah. Gives him the story. Favre comes back out. I'm still talking to Rogers, and he comes after me again. And we start arguing right in front of Rogers, and it was relatively heated. I said, Brett. I'm, if you want to talk about what's erroneous about the story or what's inaccurate, that's fine. I'm right here. The first time around when we, when he confronted me, I asked him if he read the story and he did say no. And that's what prompted the PR person to go get him a copy of the story. Mm. So now he's read the story. I said, look, tell me what's wrong. What, what do you take issue with? He, and he, he doesn't have an answer because he knows it's all factual of what happened after the game. Mm. And he just says, I'm not going to forget this. And he walks off. Rogers, on the other hand, is sitting in his locker listening to the whole thing, turns after Favre walks away and says, I promise I will never do that to you. Yeah. And that was the start of our friendship, uh, or at least relationship, I shouldn't say friendship. And it allowed him to kind of get a glimpse into how this job is done. Mm. So it, you know, it, it turned out to be a pretty important moment. And Favre and I, I didn't ask any questions the rest of the year or for the next like month of press conferences. And then he and I finally had kind of a thaw where I, you know, I asked the question at a press, press conference. I said, you know, Brett, you, you're not used to losing. You're kind you seem like kind of a, you know, you're yelling at guys on the, on the field, which is not something that he had traditionally done. Mm. And I said, and you and I obviously have had our differences. Are you just, you just feel lost this season because you're not used to this. And he had a great answer about how it's basically like being without a roadmap or without GPS. Yeah. And he's just not familiar with this. So we ended up eventually mending that fence, but that that's just one of many times where you write something that somebody doesn't like, but you know, they're human too. 
And I understand that no one wants to be criticized harshly, but that was, he needed to be criticized for that. He's supposed to be better than that. And he wasn't that year. And, you know, the next couple of years we were fine. I'm sure it was wearing on him that year that they had drafted Rodgers and he had, and Favre had played poorly much of the year and the team wasn't very good. And he threw 29 interceptions and all that. So, mm. you know, I, I always try to think in the terms of, you know, these guys are people too, and they have other issues that they're dealing with or they're outside their comfort zone or whatever. And try to remember that when they react the way they do. And it's it's very interesting as well that you raise the whole the human aspect because I think there's an awful lot of fans out there and and all of the fans and and we all get carried away I guess. Um, now personally myself, I don't like to bring um anything too personal to it because some of the stuff is absolutely abominable that you see online and and the abuse that players get. Uh, you know, and a case in point is Brandon Bostic. I mean, Jesus, the guy couldn't live after that. Um you know, sort of muffed onside kick or whatever. So, I mean, you know, people really do go after people and someone who just cannot avoid the stories. And I guess we saw it in a jokey way. And, you know, you've mentioned them in that piece and the kind of the contrast sort of size to these two men between Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers, not to compare the two at all. If you can maybe just focus on Aaron Rodgers, uh, because certainly over here, we consume an awful lot of our content. We don't have it on terrestrial TV, so we have to seek it out and we have to read as many articles as we can. And there's certain media tropes, uh, Jason, and one of them is is that Aaron Rodgers himself is, you know, this hypersensitive guy who has a chip on his shoulder that you cannot criticize, you cannot say anything about. But if there's one reporter that has a fantastic rapport with him, and of course you had your radio show Tuesdays with Aaron, um, what is Jason Wilday's take on the man that Aaron Rodgers is and how he has changed over over time? Because from from a distance from me, I think he was um, you know, a perfectionist and he still is obviously uh, hyper competitive, but also he took himself very, very seriously. And that was always deemed as a criticism on him and people would compare him to Brett and say Brett was this sort of gung-ho gunslinger and he was loads of fun, whereas Aaron was more uptight. I've seen him laugh more, joke more with the media. And even with that chugging incident, it kind of looked like he was taking the piss. So, you know, he's kind of taken himself a bit more lightly. But I can't really blame the guy with what's came out in the media about his family and, you know, his relationships and everything else. But from your perspective and how you know him, how would you describe Aaron and how do you think he has or if he even has changed over time? Yeah, I don't think he's changed a lot. Uh, in the time I've known him, I would say there's a couple of things to unpack there. Um, I would start with, I don't think you can have a conversation about Rogers and how he's perceived and how Packers fans feel about him without comparing him to Favre because mm. he is so different. Yeah. Um, his style of play is so different. He is not a risk taker. I, I can't get over, you know, again, we didn't have social media for most of Favre's career. So I didn't get the instant hashtag fire capers responses in games <laughs> that I have for years. Yeah. I didn't get the, you know, uh, the feedback on Rogers that frustrated fans with events. Um, but I wonder if we had had social media to that degree when Favre was throwing the interception in the fourth and 26 game in 2003, when he was throwing the interception in overtime of the NFC championship game in 2007, mm. Um, I wonder how people would have reacted because um, he ha he made some pretty colossal mistakes in very critical times. And then obviously 
you know, Packers fans were able to say to Vikings fans, welcome to our world when he threw the interception <laughs> in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, but, but I think, you know, it almost felt like, I don't want to say it was Teflon, but in some ways, you know, whether it was indiscretions off the field or his crucial mistakes. I mean, can you imagine how Packers fans would react to Aaron Rodgers if he threw six interceptions in a game yeah. and had three of them return for touchdowns against uh, the St. Louis, then St. Louis Rams in the NFC divisional round. I mean, you know, people, people criticize him for not playing well enough in Seattle in 2014. And he didn't play well enough. Yeah. I think most of us pointed it out. I don't think they lost because of him, mm. but I certainly think that he did not play as well as they needed him to that day. So I think in some ways, any discussion about how Packers fans seem to feel about Rogers is at least shaded slightly by how they felt about Favre. Yeah. And, you know, we had Favre on with Tausch and I a couple of weeks ago and, it really is remarkable. People love him. They have forgiven him of everything. And I did ask him if it was a good thing that he did not lead the Vikings to the Super Bowl and a title. Yeah. And uh, he laughed nervously and then <laughs> said, "Why do you have to ask such tough questions?" But I think he knows that if he if he if he leads the Vikings to their first Super Bowl title, that maybe the uh, love fest that it is now yeah. become again with him doesn't happen. But I, I think the way Rogers is perceived is clearly influenced by how people felt about Favre. And, you know, it, to some degree, it's the same as Ron Wolf versus Ted Thompson. No one who sustains success is going to be as beloved as the person who brought success after a long time without it. Yeah. And so I think that's a component. I think Favre, whether it was a perception or a reality, Favre created the feeling that you knew him better than Rogers has created the feeling that you know him, right? I mean, you felt like you knew Meemaw and everybody down in the kill Mississippi, whereas Rogers has been more guarded for much of his life and continues to be, even if he posts stuff on social media, he dated a Hollywood actress, you know, for Favre. And even though his wife, you know, alluded to uh, affairs when they were married, et cetera, in her book, mm. you know, the fact of the matter is he married his high school sweetheart Then Packers fans can relate more to that. So I think all those things come into the way Rogers is perceived by fans. Now that said, um, I do think that he, during the era of our radio show, allowed people in more and they felt like they knew him better. And I think, they liked him more. Yeah. And I think we're kind of back to, they don't, a lot of fans don't feel like they know him. He dated a actress. He is in all these commercials. So that, I don't, I don't know if they feel the same connection to him that fans of the, of an earlier era felt toward Favre. That said, I don't think he's changed. And I think, you know, if you, if you get the, the chance to be exposed to him uh, or be around him when he's around kids, which he's fantastic with. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe you would have a different perception. But look, he also had um, disagreements with his coach. Mm. Uh, he was critical of his coach. Uh, he admitted to Tausch and I earlier this year that he was wrong to air his frustrations after that Buffalo game yeah, the way yeah. he did. Yep. I thought that was a terrible look for him, mm. and I criticized him for it. Um, but, you know, I, I I think there's a different vibe with him and, Hol him and McCarthy versus the – Favre-Holmgren 
vibe, right? Yeah. Like he was the crazy gunslinger who drove Holmgren up the wall, <laughs> whereas Rodgers was the super talented quarterback who thought he was smarter than his coach and may very, very well have been. I mean, you have to acknowledge that possibility. But I think all those things play into how he's perceived versus how Favre is perceived. And that's why when we talk about Rodgers, people don't maybe they appreciate his greatness, mm. but I don't think they love him as much as some people love Favre, even though Favre broke, has broken their hearts as Packers fans far, many, far more times <laughs> than Rodgers has. And I guess Richie Biddle on Twitter um, has been asking as well, you know, what happened to Tuesdays with Aaron? But let me let me add on to that and say, is there a possibility of having a Jason Aaron reunion? And he seems to be crazy for uh, Jason Wilde content because he also asks, are the podcast for Wilde and Tao going to be longer than three minutes? Uh, have you anything to say on the two of them? Um well, I'm probably going to speak out of school on both of these things. And if I get fired, you guys are going to have to find a way to employ me. <laughs> uh, but um, at ESPN Wisconsin, um, we have had conversations. It, the The end of Tuesdays with Aaron was simply he had a four-year contract. The contract expired. Uh, he wanted to explore some other things. Ended up doing nothing, which I appreciated yeah like it would have been i think more hurtful had he gone and <laughs> done something with somebody else yeah um but we but tausch and i have had conversations with him i i think there's mutual interest in doing something similar maybe not every tuesday um but that you know I, that's something that uh is still in the works and needs to be fleshed out further but i have i i'm cautiously optimistic that there may be something uh, down the road, but I, I don't know that for sure. Mm. Uh, and if this makes it into the Twitterverse, I am hopeful, but I am by no means guaranteeing it. It's really the, the ball is going to be in Aaron's court at the end. Yeah. As far as podcasts, um, I cannot express how appreciative I am of how loyal people have been to whether it was green and gold today or just my podcast of just me when I'm on with Homer or on yeah. various shows. Um, there is a business plan in place for those. Okay. Um, folks that have uh, been missing podcasts um, have been very vocal. I hope that they aren't so angry with those three-minute <laughs> podcasts that they won't come back. But um, I, I think I don't think I'm speaking out of school when I say that the journalism landscape, whether it's broadcast or print, has reached a point where we need to be able to we need to be able to afford to stay in business. And so, I think that there will be a an on-demand version of what we produce. Yeah. And I think there'll be a monthly fee that people will pay, and they'll get all full shows and full appearances on the various shows from me, and all those ty- types of things. So I hope that while I understand frustration with three minutes a day, uh, that is not a permanent thing. And I would keep my eye out for this to become uh, more than just talk and become reality uh, right around the start of the football season and when the Packers kick it off against the Bears. 
Well, there's a Futurama meme of uh, a guy holding money saying, take my money. And I'm pretty sure that's what Alpaca fans are going to say when they hear this. Uh, Needless to say. Um, So look, this is the problem um, with me. I get uh, like a kid in a candy store. I get so excited about the machinations behind everything and how everything works. I even had Craig Schilbauer on from the Packers. And even before it, he was kind of like, you know, what are we going to talk about? And I said, you leave that up to me, buddy. And I had him on for a good half an hour talking about the ins and outs of, you know, how stuff was put on and uh you know the media within lambo so we are now six minutes away from our, our allotted time and i already ha- I still have about 50 questions to ask you but i'm going to cherry pick a couple of them uh jason maybe to fire at you um and a few maybe a few random ones at the end so you've spoke about the sort of dynamic between Favre and his coach uh you know aaron Rodgers and mike mccarthy now that era has ended and we see matt lafleur with walking boot and all um, and there's been an awful lot made of you know the two of them going back and forward and i know uh, you and mark had that conversation about uh, audibles and what was actually said and the and the everything behind all of that what are your first impressions of the relationship between rogers and lafleur and you know if if too much of that is kind of guesswork because it's behind closed doors um lafleur as a person and as a coach i mean are you amped up and excited to cover this team um as a journalist and i suppose as a fan now that he's entered the building well i'm hopeful that he'll be a little less um guarded than McCarthy was to end his tenure and how guarded I think Matt has been to start out. I think he started to come out of his shell a little bit. I know he was really embarrassed about his Achilles tear. <laughs> um, but I, look, I, I think that people focusing on, oh, you know, here's the one quote from Silver Story and, oh, Rogers doesn't like this guy already. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you're forgetting how frustrated Rogers was with McCarthy. Mm. I mean, I, I, I think we saw both outward manifestations of that. And I think there were t- stories that I can't tell that were pretty clear were uh, behind closed doors issues between those two. Yeah. And so I, I think there's a, a genuine excitement and uh, refreshment that he feels with LaFleur, but they do have to work through those different aspects LaFleur has never had, and this offense has never had a quarterback of Rodgers' ilk running it. Yeah. And Rodgers has never had, uh, you know, plays that were so dictated, not since he started out as a starter, mm. plays that were dictated by the call and he couldn't make changes to. Look, Aaron Rodgers is not perfect. Yeah. There were times where I'm sure he changed the call and it was a mistake. Yeah. But I think if they can find that happy medium, I would compare it to when you're regulating the water in your faucet, you don't want all cold water coming out. You don't want all hot water coming out. Both of those are not ideal. So they have to find, I don't know what that temperature is that they need to get to, but they need to find that temperature on that issue and some other aspects of this offense. Mm. But I think I'll just, I'll leave this, this answer here. When they, when the Rams played the Vikings on Thursday night football early in the season, there was a buzz on that Friday, the next day, in the Packers locker room about that Rams offense and what it did on a short week against a very good defense. Yeah. And Rogers was among the people who was excited. And I don't think it was a coincidence that Rogers watched that game on Thursday night. He and McCarthy had a conversation on Friday morning about adapting some of the things the Rams do into their offense. And then Rogers had those harsh comments on Sunday after the game about their offense. That was all in the same week. And I don't think you have to be a super sleuth to see that maybe there is some cause and effect there. 
Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, that's even what I had written down in sort of the interview notes was, look, it's going to be a trial and error um, and they're going to have to sort of gauge what he can and can't do. Like you say, I mean, it'd terrify me as a coach and for as little as I know to be able to walk in. And I often look at players, even in the football world, like, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, and how you go in and coach any of these players without them sort of looking at you saying you don't know what you're talking about. It's going to be a very odd dynamic. Um, but someone that we have seen for a year now, uh, Mike Petten and the defense. So I know you guys discussed on your show the DVOA and you know everyone's looking at the Packers and saying top 10 defense. Is the expectation that, you know, taking DVOA into account that this is going to be a stellar performance, especially since we've added so heavily, uh, you know, both in free agency and the draft? And do you think it's kind of, uh, is it a do or die moment for Petten's defense this year? Do you think, Jason, in the sense that they've invested so much again in the defense this year? And if, if Petten doesn't sort of step up to the mark and the defense improve massively, that there's going to be serious ramifications for Mike Petten in Green Bay? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know. You know, his first year was with McCarthy. Now he's got a new head coach who made it his priority to keep him. I think the I think the blueprint is the Chicago Bears, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, new first time young, innovative offensive head coach comes in, keeps the veteran defensive coordinator, defense plays well, uh, while the offense finds itself, they end up winning the division. I think that's the hope here. I don't think, you know, Mike Patton is in danger of, well, if the defense isn't great, he's going to get fired. But there's no qu- you're absolutely right. The investments they've made with three free agent signings and two first-round draft picks, hmm. that the expectation is that now Patton has the types of players that he needs. He's got the flexibility with Zedaria Smith, Preston Smith, and Rashawn Gary, that he should be able to run this defense the way he wants to run it instead of trying to fit some square pegs in the round holes. So I think the expectations are fairly high. And by fairly, I mean, they're very high, but that's fair to expect. But I don't, I, I think, I think the biggest thing about the defense is while the offense finds itself, yeah, they're going to have to carry this team early on. Mm. And it's going to be really important that they win some close, low scoring games to start the season. Cause remember five of their first seven are at home and you do not want those to go to waste because your offense is trying to figure it out in a new scheme yeah it's it's a scary part too isn't it that the offense i mean we they keep saying it's going to be the shanahan offense and and you know it's going to resemble la but i think at the very start it's not going to resemble a whole lot it's going to have to bed down um, and get better but look who knows we could get off to a, a savage start there is about a billion questions that I didn't get to ask. So I wonder, uh, my last question for you, Jason, is will you come on again sometime soon and I can fire the rest of these 700 questions at you because it's been absolutely fascinating. Yeah, why don't we, uh, we'll do a second installment um, and we'll uh, do it next week. How's that sound? That sounds amazing. Absolutely fantastic. Usually people say yes and then <laughs> it's it's like seven months later and I'm trying to wrangle them back on. That's fantastic. But listen, uh, Jason, we love all your content. Uh, as it showed from Twitter uh, and the questions that we got, people are screaming out for more of your content and from what you've said on the podcast, hopefully there's some absolutely great stuff coming down the line. Um, but what's, what's upcoming for you apart from your radio show, Will Day and Tausch and ESPN Wisconsin? Have you got any good pieces that you have in the pipeline that we have to look forward to? We uh, no, we have a family trip to Oregon that we have planned instead, and and um, I will just I'll leave you with this. I, I I know I sometimes overshare different things about my life. Um, one of the reasons why I think I identify with Rogers is that 
you know, my um, relationship with my parents or my family was not what I wanted it to be either. Um, and they maybe didn't treat um, people that are really important to me the way I, I would have appreciated them treating her. Yeah. And so I, I can identify a little bit with that. And so we're, we're fortunate. We have my best friend um, who worked for the Packers once upon a time on their website. His dad is uh, his Ron Bellamy. He was the sports editor at the Eugene Register Guard, which is the University of Oregon is in Eugene. And he's really become one of those, uh, the couple of guys that have been kind of surrogate dads to me. And we get to go out and spend a, a week and a half with him and his wife and, and their kids and, and we're really excited. The girls get to go take part in the Oregon State Gymnastics Camp and then the University of Oregon Soccer Camp. And so, um, you know, I I hope when people, because I know there's a part of the Packers fan base that one of the reasons why they're critical of Rodgers or what have you is um, they have some questions about how can he not get along with his family. Yeah. And we just had an argument today on our show about um, – you know, whether that's anyone's business. Yeah. And Jesse Nelson, our producer, wants to see a documentary about it at some point. Yeah. Um, I would just I would just say that, um, you know, if, if you have a great rapport with your family and they are a vital part of your life, then appreciate that. Um, if they're not and there are issues um, or if there are people that you know that have issues, understand that. Yeah. And then if you have an opportunity to fill that void for someone else, uh, jump at that opportunity. I know Aaron Rodgers has a number of people in his life that have kind of filled that void for him. Mm. And I've been fortunate to find those people as well. So just uh, going back to what we said at the very beginning, um, every, every one of these people, including us, you and I mm. are human yeah. and there are things beyond the Packers and beyond football that go on. And so I would just, I guess my parting statement for this installment of my appearance with you would be to just remember that and uh, remember that um, you can appreciate what Rogers does as a player, mm. but I would hope he can be a little more open-minded about what he might be like as a person. Yeah. Well, there we go. Uh, Jason, will they uh, certainly bring in the human aspect to, uh, you know, sports reporting and giving us the bigger picture, which is exactly why uh, we know and love and can't get enough of your content. So again, I have to t- thank you, Jason. Uh, we'll be speaking to you next week. Happy days. Uh, so from myself at Steedy the NFL and from Jason Wilday over in Wisconsin, it's goodbye for this week. <laughs>